Amen. What a great blessing that God has given us, his word, that we might see him in it. Let's take out our copy of that word now. And we're going to turn this morning to Mark chapter 5. As we make our way steadily through this wonderful record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as Mark gives it to us, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, such that what we have here is God's word to us. We're going to read the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5 this morning, so follow along with me as I read. Chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the events that it describes. We thank you for the use to which you put your word to teach us, to convict us. Lord, even for those who do not yet know Christ, by your will to convert through your word. And we pray that whatever particular use you have for each individual here this morning. We pray that you would do it. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear, Lord, what your Spirit says to the church 
through these words this morning. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It only takes a short time of driving around our town, or indeed many of the towns uh, here in California and, and beyond, just a short drive before one comes across some person standing on a corner in a parking lot with a handmade cardboard sign begging for money. And it only takes a, a very cursory look on our streets to find what we sometimes refer to as homeless camps, areas where people, people, we need to remind ourselves of that, human beings, for a variety of reasons, find themselves or choose for themselves a life on the street. There are a few who end up in this state through no fault of their own, either through financial misfortune or various other causes that put people uh, who need medical or psychological treatment out onto the streets with no recourse. But most are living there as a result of horrible choices that they have made that have led to a life lived in a cycle of alcohol or drugs and crime to support their habits of alcohol or drugs. Just terrible situations, regardless of the reason, really, and regardless of what each of us may think is the best way to deal with that. That's really not the point of me bringing that up here this morning. The fact is that it is a sad situation, and one can't, I hope, look at those who live in those situations, who live in those conditions, many in life-destroying bondage, and not see the, the hurt, not recognize their misery, and feel pity for them. Especially we as, as Christians, as we see people that we recognize as people being, who are made in the image of God, suffering, even if, if the suffering is a result of their own doing and of their, their own choosing. We feel we should feel pity for them because they are miserable. Whether they recognize it or not, whether they would admit it or not, they are living in misery. Well, this morning, Mark presents us with a picture of a man living in misery and of a great deliverance that has worked in his life. And he tells us about the bringer of the deliverance in the midst of that great misery. And the bringer of that deliverance, of course, is Jesus Christ. This is a powerful episode uh, pulled out of the life and the ministry of Jesus and put on the pages of Mark's gospel for us to consider this morning. The episode that we're looking at this morning takes place after Jesus and his disciples had left the city of Capernaum up on the, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee and had uh, sailed across the sea onto the other side. Mark tells us here that they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. Now exactly where they are, where there are different ideas because that, that term is not a, a familiar term, that place is not a familiar place. So exactly where this incident takes place 
there are a few different um, possibilities. I think the most likely, based on the context of the story itself, is a town known as Gergesa, which is right on the shore, right on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was part of the region that's known and called by Scripture the Decapolis, which is a league of ten Greek Gentile cities, polises, ten of them, Decapolis, um, in that region. And this is, again, this, this story that we have this morning, a very vivid picture. Um, and Mark's description of it is the most detailed of the, of the Gospels that record this. And it paints for us a picture, and a very vivid picture, as Mark's gospel often does, a picture of several things. It paints us a picture of absolute misery, the misery of this man. It paints for us a picture of the authority of Jesus over the situation, over the demon, the demons uh, that both oppressed and possessed this poor man. And it's a picture of the results in this man's life of the miracle that is wrought in him by Christ. And along the way, each of these elements in the story point us to something greater, to a greater misery and to a greater deliverance. The misery and the deliverance of which every Christian is a picture. We're going to look at this story this morning under just three uh, headings, and we're going to begin by looking at a picture of abject misery, a picture of abject misery. Now, I mentioned that that Mark sets up this encounter as by tying it on as as a follow-on from Jesus and his disciples' boat trip from Capernaum down to the, the eastern shore of the lake. Remember having taught all day there in Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They, at Jesus' direction, had set out on a small boat across the sea or lake. It's called the, the a lake. It's called the sea. It's a big lake. Um, but they come across for a time perhaps of rest, we mentioned last week. A boat trip during which they encountered a sudden and violent storm which had even, remember, these seasoned fishermen that were part of the group, fearing for their lives. And Jesus, after being awakened from his peaceful sleep in the midst of the storm, we talked about that last week as well, with cries from the disciples saying, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? When that happened, with Jesus sits up out of his sleep and with divine power spoke, remember, to the wind and to the waves and to the storm and said, peace, be still. And immediately the storm ceased. Remember, leaving the disciples even more terrified than they were before from the storm and wondering as they say, who is this? That even the the wind and the seas obey him. And so Mark tells us that after the rest of that trip, that they came to the other side of the sea and to the country of the Gerasenes, to that area that we just discussed here on the eastern shore of the lake. And it appears to us immediately that the real reason for Jesus to say, let us get into this boat from Capernaum and go over to the other side, the real reason for their trip was not to rest 
but was to come to keep an appointment that God had made between Jesus and this man. Because Mark specifically mentions that as soon as Jesus stepped out of the boat, the events start to unfold. No no rest, just ministry. As soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, this man comes running up to him. And verse verse 6 says it. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, who is this man? Let me introduce him to you uh, just a couple of minutes here. We're never told his name. We will learn a name associated with him, but it's not the man's name. So we don't know his name. And this man, as you hopefully caught as we read through this, this man is in the height or the depth of misery. He is a man whose life is a life of physical and spiritual torture. You know, we spoke yesterday at the memorial service about Job in the Old Testament, a man who I referred to as the poster child for suffering. Well, this man, I think, as Mark describes him here, uh, qualifies for that distinction in the New Testament. He is a man who, as Mark describes him, is a picture of misery because he is a picture of uncleanness. That's the word that gets used. Now, we know from our studies and our reading in the Old Testament that uncleanness in the Scripture was a condition of ceremonial religious defilement. To be unclean was to be defiled, was to be impure and and polluted, and therefore cut off from God and cut off from God's people and cut off from God's blessings. In the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, someone who was rendered or who was determined to be unclean had to withdraw from all of the, the normal aspects of his life, from his family, from his work, Uh, Most importantly, from worship. He had to be apart from all of that until he or she, following the instructions that were given by God and carried out very often by the priests, until those specific steps were taken, including sacrifices and offering, some sort of ceremony. When all of those were finally done, then the person could again be pronounced clean and he could rejoin society. Uncleanness is a picture in the Old Testament, in Scripture in general. It is a picture of the defilement of sin and of the separation that sin causes us from God. The Bible says that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and that's what sin does. God, who is too holy than to look upon sin, cannot look upon it with pleasure. It is contrary to him. It is that which must be judged by him. And this man who comes, who runs up to Jesus, is presented to us as an unclean man. And Mark makes that very clear and very um, evident in the way that he describes him. 
Let's see that here. First and obviously, he is internally unclean. And I'll use some categories and there's some overlap here. But to give you an idea of this, he is first internally unclean. He is possessed by what the Bible calls, what Mark calls here, an unclean spirit. And what is an unclean spirit? We've seen it earlier in the book of Mark. But if we look at the rest of our, ch- our chapter here, or our passage here, once you get down to verse 15 and 16 and 18, they don't use the word unclean spirit anymore. We hear that the term is demon-possessed. So to be the unclean spirit is what we would call a demon. Actually, this man has been overwhelmed not just by one, but by many demons. In verse 9, we learn that the demon is called legion, He says, for we are many. And then when they are cast, he, they are cast into the pigs, there's enough of them to panic 2,000 pigs and cause them to commit mass suicide. Certainly an internally defiling, polluting presence and influence on this man. But that's just the beginning of it. Second, he's not only internally unclean, but he is... Racially unclean. should probably explain that so it's not misunderstood. He is in the country of the Gerasenes. That is a Gentile area. And to the Jews, the Gentiles were unclean. Since the time of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament law, the Gentiles were spoken of as unclean. Jews were, were forbidden by God to intermarry with Gentiles. God had revealed himself not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews, the people that he had chosen. In fact, there were very few things to Jews that were worse than Gentiles. This man is a Gentile, living in a Gentile area. And so he's unclean in that way. Thirdly, we could say he's also unclean uh, externally, we'll call it. Once again, in the Old Testament, one of the things that would confer uncleanness on someone was coming into contact with a dead body. Death was the sort of the ultimate outworking of uncleanness. And so God in his law gave very specific instructions to avoid things that had to do with death. Touching dead bodies, touching bones would render someone unclean. And so as part of that, the Jews would make their, their graves very clear. They'd either put them into the side of caves or into caves, or they would paint them uh, so that they could be seen, so that no one would even accidentally walk over a grave, walk on ground that was unclean, and would then make them unclean. Remember Jesus referring uh, to the Pharisees uh, as whitewashed tombs. He explained that. He said, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And here, this man, this demon-possessed man, we read that he came to Jesus from out of the tombs, and we read in verse 3 that he lived among the tombs. His life was spent among a defiling influence. He was unclean by virtue of being constantly in contact with graves, with tombs. Well, fourthly, finally, he was not only unclean internally and externally and racially, but he was unclean ceremonially. 
Again, there's some overlap there with some of the other categories. But one of the parts of this story that we're going to see, one of the parts that's often um, made much of, is that uh, there is on the hillside in this area a herd of pigs. Now that's absolutely normal in a Gentile area. You would never find that in a Jewish area. Because if you've done any reading in the Old Testament, you'll know that, that pigs or swine were especially despised and avoided by the Jews. They were avoided because God's word said to avoid them. They were categorized as unclean in the Mosaic law. Uh, Leviticus 11 talks about that. And to the Jews, pigs symbolized filth and, and ugliness. Strict Jews, by the way, would not even refer to them by that name, by swine. But they would use the term the abomination instead. And in fact, you know that in the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the ultimate way of defiling the temple, when those who sought to defile the temple defiled it, was to sacrifice a pig in the temple. That was an ultimate offense to the Jews because pigs were unclean. So the picture of this man begins with Mark making it clear over and over and over that he is an unclean man. And his condition continues to get worse. All of this is as a result of his possession by this unclean spirit or these unclean spirits. He dwells in the tombs. What a wretched existence. This man certainly at some point has a family, has a family somewhere, but he's estranged from them. He dwells in the place of the dead, possessed by a demon and living in an area that was, as it is today in some places, believed to be the realm of demons. And to add to this miserable existence that Mark describes for us, Luke adds this telling thing, he says that for a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. He is irrational in his mind and in his strength. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. He could break chains. He had strength. The demon apparently uh, gave him the strength to break these shackles, these chains, these, anything used to bind him. Why did they try to bind him? Who tried to bind him? Was he dangerous? He was probably dangerous to himself, dangerous to others. We're not told specifically. We're told only that they could not succeed. You know, this, this demonstrates to us, among other things, the, the strength of the devil. Since he's able to give this man this strength, he is, the devil's not someone to be trifled with because though he is not stronger than God, he is strong. He is stronger than you on your own. And though this man had great, this great strength, it didn't give him the strength to free himself from the bondage that he found himself in. Verse 5 tells us that night and day, 
among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He lived a life of continual torment, seeking peace but finding none, finding only more torment, more and continually self-destructive behavior. That is the gift to this man from this unclean spirit who dwells in him. And such is the miserable state of this man who has an appointment today to meet Jesus as he steps off the boat. And the second thing we're going to look at is a picture of divine deliverance here in this record that we have. Mark tells us that the man doesn't wait for Jesus to come to him, but when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Before we go any further here, let me point out something to you. That this encounter between Jesus and this man here sort of pulls back from the man. The man is not really the the main point here. It says almost nothing about him. He's only mentioned incidentally. The crux of the encounter here is between Jesus and the demon that is possessing this man. As we read this, it's sometimes hard to to know, to make a distinction between whether it's, it's the man acting or whether it's the demon acting, whether it's the man speaking or the demon speaking. Is this man running to Jesus because he knew that Jesus could deliver him from this situation, or was it the demon causing the man to run because he knew who Jesus was and he knew that he was obliged to worship the Son of God? I think it's the latter, that this is the demon coming to Jesus or causing the man to run to Jesus. And Mark says that he ran and fell down before him. We saw this back in chapter 1, the same kind of thing, when Jesus had a similar experience uh, and an encounter with a demon-possessed man. This says that that he ran and fell down before him, and the word that's used in the original that we translate fell down before him is especially a word that means to to prostrate oneself in worship. And although the demons worship not out of obedience and love, but out of obligation and fear, they still worship. They still must worship and bow before Christ as every creature will on the last day. And the demon in this man, as we saw again back in chapter 1, he recognized Jesus immediately. He knew who he was. He recognizes Jesus' authority over him. And we see then here in verse 7 that he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, why did he say that? Well, Mark tells us in verse 8, that it it is a response to Jesus casting the demon out of this man, saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And of course, again, we saw this back in chapter 1. The demons know who Jesus is. They recognize that he is the son of the most high God. He recognizes the deity and the divine origin of this man who is standing before him. And there... In chapter 1, as here in chapter 5, this demon also knows his ultimate fate. And he refers to it. 
Now, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that on the last day, when Jesus returns as judge of the living and the dead, and the books are open, everyone is gathered, and everyone is judged out of what was written in the books, we read there in chapter 20 that in that day, the devil and the demons for whom the lake of fire was created along with all of those who reject the free offer of salvation and, and by that join uh, the side of the devil and the demons, that they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, Scripture tells us. The demon knows this. Remember, we've talked about how the demons have very good theology. They know who Jesus is. There's no doubt to them. They don't because of that love Christ, they hate Christ, but they know who he is. And this demon knows not only who Jesus is, but what is on the horizon for him, for the demon. And so he begs Jesus, do not torment me. Matthew, in his record, helpfully adds, uh, he says, do not torment me before the time. The reference to that time recorded in Revelation 20. The demons know that their time is coming that their decision to throw in with Satan in the cosmic rebellion was ill-advised in the extreme. They know their punishment. They know the eternal torment. And they know that it is unavoidable. But this demon begs that Jesus is not coming to start that now or to add some other type of torment to it. The demon that is so bold and so abusive to this man now begs Jesus for some temporary mercy. Now, there's kind of a, a strange mixture of intention here on the part of the demon. Yes, he recognizes Jesus. He knows who he is. But he's also, it seems, making a play, as it were, as he, as he addresses Jesus with this full title, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, it seems that he is engaging in a, a desperate attempt to turn the tables and exercise some authority over Jesus. It was believed that to know and to declare the specific name of a person in this, this time of history, was a means of obtaining power over them. And so it could be here that this, this is this demon's attempt to gain some control over Jesus. I think verse 9 adds to that. Because in, in response to that, Jesus turns around and asks the demon's name. And the demon has no choice but to, to reply to give up his name, as it were, to recognize Jesus' authority in that way, to, uh, in modern parlance, to cry uncle. Does anybody know what that means anymore? Oh, the adults do. I'm dating myself again. But he answers, he says, My name is Legion, for we are many. And with that settled, the demon then resorts again to begging Jesus for mercy, which in this instance, Jesus grants. Uh, verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. 
we'll go on. And, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And in this, we see sort of the, the nature of Satan and his cohorts, the demons. The legion here, once cast into the pigs, is now able to do what he was working to do in the man, the man from the tombs, to completely destroy him. But he couldn't do that, but now they can completely destroy these pigs, and they do so by causing them to run down the bank into the sea and be drowned into the sea. And in all of that, we see this picture of deliverance. And we see in the last place, then, a picture of grateful service. So Mark tells us, with all of that being done, that after the pig herders see it, they run back to town and they tell what has happened, and then the crowds begin to come. They begin to come and to see for themselves, and what they see astound them. And the man who had been so miserable is found to be not so miserable anymore. He's found with Jesus. And I like how Mark describes him to really make it clear who he's talking about to his readers. He says, the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. Yeah, that very one is the one I'm talking about. They found him instantly delivered from the oppression of the demon. He was sitting there, Mark says. He hadn't done that for who knows how long. He couldn't be bound. He couldn't be controlled. He was always crying out in constant torture. Now he's sitting there. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. When was the last time, do you think, that was true of this man? We don't know. We're not told how long he had been in that state. But we do know that what was done by Jesus for this man was done in an instant. In a moment, with a word. And when the ones who had seen all of this describe what happens, well, the disciples must have had a flashback to Jesus calming the storm just the night before on the way over and their reaction to that because Mark says that when the townspeople heard what Jesus had done, they were afraid. Not of the man, though they had certainly been fearful of him. If they were the ones, that must have been the ones who tried to bind him. But now that he's sitting in his right mind, clothed with Jesus, having a discussion, they were afraid. Just like the disciples, when Jesus calmed the storm, that they were afraid, that they were terrified. And as a result, here in this situation, these people who come and they hear it, they were afraid. Verse 17 says, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Why? If you were in that situation, it seems like you would say, Jesus, stay here and do more of these kinds of work. But we don't know. Maybe they were uncomfortable with this strange power being manifest in their midst. Or maybe, I think this is a good possibility from the words that go just before it, where it says that they came to Jesus. This is verse 15. uh, No, verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. 
And I think it's a good possibility that they wanted Jesus to leave because they were uncomfortable with the loss of a herd of pigs, which was likely their livelihood. But what's really interesting, I think, is that Jesus acquiesces to their request. And the text tells us that he makes ready to leave. So he comes, he makes this appointment with this man, he delivers this man, and now they're going to leave and go back. That's what makes me think that that's why they came over here. Not to rest, not to get away, but to make this, make this appointment, to help this man. And with it done, now they're going to go back to Capernaum. But in what amounts here to an epilogue kind of to the story, we have what I see as sort of the, the beginning of the mission to the Gentiles. This man uh, here delivered from his misery by Jesus, restored again to his right mind, rescued from the destructive efforts of Satan's workers, has a very appropriate reaction, verse 18 tells us. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Let me stay with you. Let me go with you. A desire of a man who's been delivered to follow Christ more closely, to be his disciple. That makes sense. To serve Christ, to be with him. But Jesus here says, no. It says he did not permit him. Why is that? Because Jesus had something else for him to do. We don't always get to choose how God wants us to serve, do we? We may have a desire to do one thing. We may think it's the right thing. But very often God has other ideas. Because God knows more than we know. And so he has other things for us to do. As he did for this man. He had something important for him to do. And he appoints him as something of spoken very loosely, the first apostle to the Gentiles that we have recorded. Now, of course, not in a technical sense, but Jesus says in verse 19 at the end of the verse, he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The man is sent to his friends who were Gentiles and told to share with them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. He's made a missionary to the Gentiles in the Decapolis. And joyfully, we read in verse 20 that he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So what do we learn from these pictures that have been painted here? Well, it's a pretty easy picture to to draw, to look at. In the condition, of course, of this poor man, we see an unvarnished picture of the inner life of one who is captive to the devil. And that was all of us before Christ came on the scene of our lives. We were all like this man inside. No, we didn't live in tombs, we didn't wander in tombs, we didn't cut ourselves, we didn't uh, break shackles, but we were in bondage. We were in misery. Even if, like the people we see on the street, we didn't know it. We wouldn't admit it. You may not outwardly walk and scream through the tombs, 
but it is a perceptive picture of the state of the soul of one who is outside of Christ. Unclean, bearing the guilt of your sin, separated from God. Not in your right mind, calling evil good and good evil. The second thing that we see in this picture is, of course, that Jesus has the ability to deliver you from that uncleanness as he delivered this man from the uncleanness of the legion of demons that dwelt in him. That with a word, with a will, Jesus can deliver. And that is true for anyone who is outside of Christ, anyone who is under, in bondage to sin and the flesh and the devil. That Jesus has the ability to deliver you from your uncleanness. What does it take? It takes receiving that gift. It takes saying, yes, I trust Christ. I can't do it on my own. I can't deliver myself. I can't do what God wants me to do. I know that there's punishment at the end. But I trust Christ because I know he can deliver me. That's what we see here too. And then finally, as you see Jesus even afar off, as you've heard of him today, he was not far off. We see that here. Your deliverance is near because the deliverer has come. Even as Jesus had come to the nation or the country of the Gerasenes. The Deliverer has come near to you in the gospel this morning. The message of life, the message of sanity, the message of cleanness. You know, and the devil will do anything he can to keep you a man of the tombs. And very often, the way he does it goes like this. That's very interesting what you say. I will consider what you say. It seems right. And I will think about that. I will consider the claims of Christ tomorrow. See, that's all he needs to do to keep you a man of the tombs is to get you to put it off. Put it off just one day. But the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Trust Christ. He will receive you. He will deliver you. He will redeem you. He will take you from the tombs and put you in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... The fact that Christ delivers people from uncleanness. We thank you that that he sets people right. Right with God. Right with you. We thank you, Lord, for this message this morning. Thank you for your word. And we pray that you would continue to, to use your words as you see fit, Father, in the lives of these that are here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.